As a long-time foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a PhD holding historian, a professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that makes legit, seriously researched American history come to life through entertaining stories. Join me for a chronological telling of the United States story, from the revolution to fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way from 1776 to the early 20th century. Listen to History That Doesn't Suck on Spotify. Welcome to episode two in American Carnage's five-part series on Captain John Brown. This episode is titled, Standing on a Volcano. More than 50 years after everything that happens in this story is over, after almost everyone who is part of this story is dead, a writer is going to publish a roughly 400-page book devoted entirely, without exaggeration, to tearing down the role that John Brown plays in the conflict we're going to be talking about here today. And this book is called, I quote, John Brown, Soldier of Fortune, a critique. And reading through it, you get the sense that the writer was personally and grievously wrong by John Brown. Like, John Brown must have had sex with this guy's wife or something, because the level of invective against Brown that this guy has is just so intense and so acidic. Right? Even the title, Soldier of Fortune, is intended to pierce through the idea that Brown was this idealistic fighter driven by high-minded ideals about racial harmony. This writer wants you to instead believe that Brown is essentially a common criminal, one who used the chaos of the 1850s to essentially try to commit all kinds of violence and do terrible things and steal things. After the events in Harper's Ferry, some of the nation's leading intellectuals like Ralph Waldo Emerson and Henry David Thoreau will defend Brown's actions and really exalt him and talk about the sort of moral fortitude and clarity that Brown has. Emerson, right, will say that Brown being executed will make the gallows holy like the cross and sort of implicitly comparing him to Jesus. And that kind of thing just makes the writer of, of this book a guy by the name of uh, Hill Peebles Wilson. It makes him just absolutely livid. Let me just read to you a fairly typical section I picked from this book. Quote, Brown has been eulogized in surpassing eloquence by sincere people of high ideals who were unaware of the real character of the object of their adoration. They were not informed 
concerning the criminal life which she had lived or of the shockingly brutal crimes which he committed, neither did they understand that in his final undertaking he sought to involve a section of our fair land in a carnival of rape and bloodshed, end quote. You hear that section above, and your first reaction is probably something like mine, which is, wait, this guy had to have been a southern slaveholder who was upset that Brown tried liberating the slaves and destabilizing the slave system, right? Like, that's got to be the kind of person who writes that passage. And yet, in fact, that book was instead produced by people who were at least ostensibly not slaveholders, but in fact on Brown's side. People who also swore that slavery was fundamentally evil and wicked. The writing and research of this book will in fact be entirely financed by someone who, at least in theory, is on Brown's side throughout the conflict in Kansas that's going to be the subject of today's episode. In fact, for a very long time, that person who financed this book is regarded as as great as an anti-slavery figure, perhaps, as Brown is, I mean, at least through much of the 1850s, she will be much better known than Brown is. And I have to say, while I find this super interesting and counterintuitive in some ways, it also feels surprisingly contemporary and it resonates with me in this weird way. Like if you told me that Bernie Sanders' son financed a documentary attacking Hillary Clinton's legacy, and that documentary would not be released until like the year 2072. I would say like that's a little weird, but I would also say that I could 100% believe it. Maybe a historian looking back at that documentary in the year 2230 or whatever would say, hey, weren't both Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders essentially on the same side of trying to stop Donald Trump? Right, but my point here is, of course, sometimes this is how it goes. Sometimes the invective that goes back and forth between people on the same side ostensibly of a much bigger conflict, that that internal conflict can be much more heated, much more personal, and much more intense in some ways than the conflict that people on the same side direct across the aisle, so to speak. And I start here because, well, I think... And I'm so interested in the conflict we're going to talk about between the pro-slavery and the anti-slavery side, this conflict that I think, without exaggeration, is fundamental to understanding the trajectory of the U.S. and the abolition of slavery eventually, that as interesting and as important and vital as it is to understand what was going on there between those two sides, I am equally riveted, if not, frankly, more riveted by the conflicts that emerge and erupt within the anti-slavery side, the tactical and philosophical disputes that dominate the debates between the people who are ostensibly all in agreement that slavery should not expand into the Kansas territory. And just to set the stage here, I want you to imagine that like I'm walking over to the magic election board that John King likes to play with on CNN uh, during election nights. And imagine that I'm pointing at this map, right? And I'm showing you that there's roughly 17 northern states and 11 southern states. And the year is like uh, 1836. And now I want you to imagine, you know, the 19th century version of John King or Steve Kornacki. Maybe it's like Steve Kornacki with mutton chops and a top hat. And this 19th century Steve Kornacki points to a big, gray, unmarked part of the map, 
where Texas is. And then he touches Texas, and suddenly it lights up the same color as the 11 southern states south of Kentucky and Maryland. And that's because in 1848, President James K. Polk is going to declare war on Mexico really at the prodding of southern slaveholders. That's maybe a topic for another American carnage. But when the U.S. wins this war very easily and very quickly, it will essentially double the amount of land available for slavery and for slavery's expansion. And then 19th century Steve Kornacki says some stuff and then he turns back to his magic board and then he'll start pointing at other parts on the magic map. And first, what he points at are Kansas and Nebraska. And then he points at what are now Arizona and New Mexico. And then he starts pointing at stuff that's way outside the map of the United States. Places like Puerto Rico, the Dominican Republic, Guam, the Virgin Islands, Cuba, other parts of Mexico, the Philippines. Because for political junkies in the mid-19th century, there was a very, very real risk or chance that all these parts of the Western Hemisphere would soon become crucial parts of American electoral politics. Because at this time, as you might remember from high school history or whatever, the Spanish Empire is really getting to be very clearly on its last legs. And so all the remaining Spanish holdings in the New World that I've just cited suddenly look like they're going to be up for grabs. The South is just licking its chops to get these places into the U.S. as new slave states. As we said last time, slavery appeared to be dying in the late 1700s as it was abolished throughout the North. And then in the early 1800s, the cotton gin and new global capital markets will make slavery way more profitable. And rather than sort of shrinking and slowly dying out, as some of the founding fathers had naively thought, it's instead going to boom and massively expand. And so as Congress tries to avoid the conflict over whether it will side with the North or the South, in 1854, it's going to do something else that you probably remember, which is to pass something called the Kansas-Nebraska Act. And this law will set up this massive competition between the North and the South by essentially saying, really for the first time, that it's however the residents of that territory vote that will determine whether they join the Union as a slave state or as a free state. This move is intended to make the U.S. government look like neutral arbiters in the question of whether the North or the South will eventually gain more political power by essentially saying, you know, however the settlers of that territory want to, to integrate their state as a slave state or as a free state will be fundamentally up to them. And what I stress here is that everyone involved in this knows that it's not just really or not even primarily about the territories themselves. The core thing that makes this conflict that's going to occur over the fate of Kansas is really that it's going to determine the fate of the political balance of power in Washington because more Senate seats that are pro-slavery, right, will create more political momentum for extending slavery even further. And so it is not at all inconceivable, and obviously we know now that this didn't occur, but it is not inconceivable for the people living in this story that they are looking at the prospect of the late 1800s, early 1900s, witnessing the birth of a massive new American slave empire that stretches beyond the bounds of the continental United States. The year after the Kansas-Nebraska Act passes, for instance, Wendell Phillips, a Boston abolitionist, will write to a friend, uh, remember in the following quote, 
that Brazil would not, in fact, abolish slavery for another two decades following the Civil War. Wendell Phillips will write to his friend, quote, The government has fallen into the hands of the slave power completely. So far as national politics are concerned, we are beaten. There is no hope. We shall have Cuba in a year, Mexico in five. The future seems to unfold a vast slave empire united with Brazil and darkening the whole West. I hope I may be a false prophet, but the sky was never so dark, end quote. And so these stakes, right, are going to supercharge the battle for Kansas, where you almost immediately after this bill passes have northern abolitionists mobilizing people and money to flood the territory to make sure it ends up in the anti-slavery camp and pro-slavery people doing the exact same thing on the other side. The pro-slavery side, though, they have a huge advantage, right? If the North has more people and more money, which they certainly do, what the South has is proximity. Missouri is well-populated and a slave state and right on the border of Kansas. And so it will become really easy for this forest that becomes known on both sides as the border ruffians to just pour into the new territory. Sometimes they don't even have to bring their families, right? They can just ride over, mark off some land, ride back home, and call it a day. Many of these border ruffians were veterans of the Mexican-American War. And it's a big advantage for them, right, that they can just go as lone men. They don't have to bring their entire families, which is what the settlers from the north and the east do. These ruffians, they're going to be a crucial presence for this story. I really like the description that the historian Thomas Goodrich gives in his book, War to the Knife, which is about this period. Obviously, it's a little biased because the account comes from the North, but I think it gives you a flavor for what it was really like and what the, these anti-slavery settlers really did confront when they arrived on the Kansas prairie. Goodrich will uh, quote one Northerner as saying that you can essentially imagine these border ruffians as wearing a kind of uniform that they all consistently wore. These uniforms are basically as follows. A pair of long boots that are caked in dust and mud with the handle of a large knife visible on the top of either boot. This northerner will also say that the average border ruffian had two large revolvers fastened onto either side of his waist. He typically wore a red or a blue shirt with something like an eagle or an anchor branded on the back of the shirt. And then swung over this guy's shirt would typically be a rifle. And then in addition to that, the border ruffian would also typically have a sword dangling by his side. So to review, this is two knives, two revolvers, a rifle, and a sword per border ruffian. Goodrich will quote the northerner as saying of this, you know, border ruffian archetype, quote, His hair is uncut and uncombed covering his neck and his shoulders. He has an unshaven face and unwashed hands. Imagine the picture of a man who can swear any given number of oaths in any specified time, drink any quantity of bad whiskey, and boast of having stolen a half dozen soldiers and killed one or more abolitionist, and you will have a pretty fair conception of a border ruffian, end quote. The first major election in Kansas is going to be held in November of 1854, to send what's called the Territorial Representative to Congress. This is sort of similar to how U.S. territories of Guam and Puerto Rico still send one non-voting representative to Congress every year. And Missouri's leaders, these border ruffians, are going to openly tell people to go steal the election. That is not an exaggeration. The following quote comes from Benjamin uh, Frank Stringfellow, 
Stringfellow is going to be one of the key border ruffian leaders, but he also, right before this, this event, will have been the attorney general of Missouri, meaning he was the top cop, the top law enforcement official for the state of Missouri. And on the eve of this first Kansas election, Stringfellow will say the following. By the way, in the following quote, the term free soilism refers to the political movement opposed to the extension of slavery into the territories. This is sort of the more moderate cousin of abolitionism. Anyway, Stringfellow will say, quote, I tell you to mark every scoundrel among you who is the least tainted with abolitionism or free soilism and exterminate him. Neither give nor take quarter from the rascals. To those who have qualms of conscience as to violating laws, state or national, say, the time has come when such impositions must be disregarded as your rights and your property are in danger. I advise you, one and all, to enter every election district in Kansas and vote at the point of the Bowie knife and the revolver, end quote. On election day, armed ruffians camp out in front of the polls, getting drunk and harassing anybody that they believe to be Yankees or abolitionists. They threaten to hang one of the judges who appear sympathetic to the free state cause. Unsurprisingly, the pro-slavery candidate is going to win the first vote in a huge landslide. He gets something like 2,200 votes to 500 for the other candidate. A federal commission that is later sent to investigate this will determine that as many as 60% of all ballots was illegally cast from the state of Missouri. A few months later, in March 1855, the territory will hold a second election. This one is for the territorial legislature. This one is much more important because whoever wins this race will actually get to write the laws that govern the territory, including whether they apply to join the union as a slave state or as a free state. Again, there is massive amounts of voter fraud. The pro-slavery candidate will win like 37 of 39 seats. There's only like 2,000 eligible voters in the entire territory. The pro-slavery candidate will still win by a margin of several thousand votes. The elected legislators, and you have to imagine me using air quotes around the term elected, they will soon meet in the town of Pawnee. This is a pivotal moment, and the Northern press will call this... Um, pro-slavery legislature. They'll refer to it as the bogus legislature. The bogus legislature is about as bad as you can imagine from the free state perspective. Not only does it meet despite its totally illegitimate origins, it acts as if it has a complete mandate of the people. The first thing they'll do is to unseat the two anti-slavery representatives elected by the free state settlers. They then pass a series of draconian laws. Let me just read some of them to you. In Kansas, the penalty for assisting, aiding, or persuading a slave to obtain his freedom becomes grand larceny punishable by death. The penalty for concealing or harboring a runaway slave becomes no less than five years hard labor. The penalty for enticing or carrying away a slave becomes 10 years imprisonment or death. Denying the right to hold slaves in Kansas, the act of simply voicing anti-slavery opinions out loud, that becomes a felony also punishable by up to five years of hard labor. That Missouri attorney general I was telling you about, Benjamin Stringfellow, he is unsurprisingly ecstatic. He will write a letter to a Southern newspaper that says, quote, We have now passed laws more efficient to protect slave property than any state in the Union. 
these laws have just taken effect and have already silenced abolitionists, end quote. Shortly after John Brown arrives in the territory in the winter of 1855, the Kansas Free Staters get together in the anti-slavery stronghold of Topeka, Kansas. This is really going to be the first response to the bogus legislature. And they begin to draft their own constitution. This will be called the Topeka Constitution. John Brown Jr., uh, Brown's oldest son, will attend the proceedings and is quickly appointed to a top position. The Topeka Constitution is the mirror image, right, of the pro-slavery bogus legislature. This constitution will declare Kansas to be a free territory. It bans slavery. It bans the importation of slaves. They elect their own governor, and they make a point of allowing free expression. And really, this is fast becoming an enormous problem for the politicians back in Washington, right? There's actually a letter that the territorial governor of Kansas, this is sort of the temporary leader of Kansas that was appointed by the White House, by the president, to oversee the territory while it's figuring out its own government. This territorial governor, uh, his name is Governor Shannon, he will write the president, who at the time is uh, Franklin Pierce, and Shannon will say, you know, like, hey, we have a real big problem on our hands here. Pierce's cabinet, uh, President Pierce's cabinet, is filled with Southerners and future Confederates. Jefferson Davis, for instance, uh, of course, later the president of the Confederacy, Davis is Franklin Pierce's secretary of war, and he is known to wield tremendous influence over Pierce. So Pierce is going to be reluctant to do anything to too dramatically antagonize the pro-slavery side of this conflict. But he does have this real problem as well. He has two governors, two constitutions, and two sets of laws sharing one territory. And now, to make things more volatile, weapons are beginning to stream in on both sides. Pierce will later write that only the death of his 11-year-old son in a horrific train accident would prove more vexing to him during his time as president than the Kansas uh, crisis. Governor Shannon will, in fact, write in this letter to Pierce, quote, It is vain to conceal the fact. We are standing on a volcano. The upheavings and agitations beneath we feel, and that no one can tell the hour when an eruption might take place, end quote. Because now we get, again, to the part of the story I find, in some ways, the most interesting, which is, if you're an anti-slavery settler here, what is the right course of action to do? What do you do to confront the government when the election has been so blatantly rigged and stolen? Because huge differences among them will quickly emerge. I mean, you have guys like Charles Robinson. Robinson is going to be elected as the governor of the anti-slavery Topeka legislature. Robinson is from New England. His background really is not like Brown's. He studied medicine at Amherst College and is tied to wealthy abolitionists in Boston. Like Brown, Robinson is for the full equality of black people, but unlike Brown, he is not going to be the guy who will lead the fight on the ground. And I'm, I'm massively oversimplifying here, so forgive me, but Robinson's goal is essentially that he desperately wants to keep the U.S. government on the side as much as possible of the free staters. It's really a play for public opinion he wants to resist the pro-slavery border ruffians and the bogus legislature's totally fabricated elections. Like, he does join the Topeka legislature and leads it, in fact, but he looks at what Brown will want to do and say that that is counterproductive, that Brown's proposals are, you know, crazy and erratic and will drive 
Congress and the president away from the anti-slavery side and into the arms of the pro-slavery bogus legislature. And then, of course, you have people like Brown and his supporters who are saying that the attempt to manage a kind of peace with and alongside the pro-slavery border ruffians is very naive and neglects to understand truly the danger of the threat that they pose. And to give the Robinson camp its due, I think it's worth really boring in on their strategy here because their strategy is that, remember, the North is much richer and much more populous than the South. And so what they're arguing is essentially that if we wait, if we hold on and if we buy some time, we will eventually outnumber the border ruffians from Missouri who enter Kansas. And then we will eventually win the election. And eventually it will be clear to the country that this electoral fraud cannot go on. What they'll say is that you definitely don't want to just go around and start killing and instigating battles with the pro-slavery side, because if you do that, you will lose the moral high ground in Washington and it will become impossible to appeal to the White House and Congress for help. The Topeka Constitution is going to be ratified by the Free State Delegates in December 1855. By January 1856, about a month later, President Pierce will denounce the Topeka legislature and call it an illegal assembly that is literally staging an insurrection against the U.S. government. I mean, he will condemn this as an extrajudicial attempt to subvert the will of the U.S. government. Pierce will hedge a little bit by saying that, you know, extrajudicial violence on both sides is wrong, but his point is clear. The U.S. government is prepared to put down the free state Topeka legislature by force. And so Brown is going to look at all these guys in the Robinson faction and think not only are they wimps, but also they've completely lost sight of the severity of the situation here. Brown would say, and of course I'm paraphrasing here a little bit, but Brown will be saying, look, at any time here, they could be months or weeks away from the powers in Washington moving towards a situation that Kansas gets admitted into the union as a slave state. To be uh, fair, there is a point at which Brown will have and, and write letters to his family expressing support for Robinson and his strategy, but he'll quickly move beyond that. And what he'll essentially argue is that, you know, they're trying, the slave power is trying to, as we said, build a slave empire across two continents, for God's sakes. And the response from the anti-slavery side in Kansas is going to be to send a petition to ask politely how could that be the response? And again, this is a very combustible situation here in Kansas because, right, you have two sets of laws. The Missouri Board of Ruffians believe that the bogus legislature, uh, they don't call it that, but that the bogus legislature, that their laws have, have force throughout the Kansas territory. And so when anything goes wrong, they think they have the right to enforce those laws. W.E.B. Du Bois, in his biography of Brown, will summarize the approach of free state leaders like Robinson um, and General Lane, who we'll talk about in a, a little bit. These are the two main elected leaders from the Topeka legislature. Du Bois writes, summarizing this sort of more moderate, I think it's fair to say, moderate approach to confronting the bogus legislature, quote, A peace program was therefore laid down. They would ignore the patent fraud and organize a state and appeal to Congress and the nation. The pro-slavery party, however, was quick to see the weakness of this program 
and they took the first opportunity to force the free state men into collision with the authorities, end quote. There's going to be a murder around this time that will really prove Du Bois' point. An anti-slavery settler will be walking home when he's confronted by a pro-slavery settler who is claiming that he owns the same plot of land that the anti-slavery settler is already claiming as his own. And at that point, the pro-slavery man will shoot and kill the anti-slavery man with a shotgun. The body of this anti-slavery guy will be left to rot along the road for hours. And then, amazingly, the pro-slavery sheriff, this guy, a border ruffian by the name of Sheriff Jones, who very much sort of fits the archetype of the border ruffian we've been discussing, Jones will then, instead of arresting the pro-slavery settler who shot the anti-slavery guy, he will then instead arrest the witness to the killing and makes clear that he has no plans to do anything about the guy who committed the murder. And when word of this gets out, a bunch of the free state settlers behind the Topeka legislature, they'll get together and they'll stage this very daring ambush of Sheriff Jones and secure the release of this anti-slavery witness and they set him free. And so now what started right as this little land dispute is now threatening to engulf, you know, this whole region in a conflict that implicates the power of the U.S. government. Because what's really at stake here, right, is who is in in charge of this territory? Who has the power to enforce the law? The free state settlers who broke this guy out, they'll fall back to the free state stronghold of, of Lawrence, this town of Lawrence. And in response... Sheriff Jones, who made this arrest that was then broken up, Jones will then march on Lawrence with 1,500 border ruffians following him. John Brown will get word of this force that's moving on Lawrence. He and his sons have settled in the town of Osawatomie. They set up something called Brown Station. This does not sound like a fun place to have lived. Brown and his sons are essentially living in tents. It's freezing this winter. The temperatures routinely drop below 10 degrees. They don't have enough food, and to make matters worse, Brown's family is stricken by malaria. Several of his sons um, will not be able to make the journey that Brown's about to make. Brown and about seven of his men will race to the town of Lawrence. When they get there, uh, the border ruffians have already been besieging the town for about two weeks. The anti-slavery side here is terribly outnumbered and outgunned. As I said, the border ruffians have something like 1,500 men. The uh, anti-slavery side has maybe a third of that number, depending on which historian uh, you want to read. When Brown arrives, he's put in charge of a small company of men. And then he spends the next two days coming up with this audacious, maybe insane plan. Brown will go around um, the town of Lawrence trying to convince the other anti-slavery men that all they need to do is place like about a dozen guys at different parts along the line of the Missouri ruffians. According to Brown's plan, these 10 men or so will fire simultaneously in the middle of the night at the ruffians. And then again, according to this wacky plan Brown has, what will happen then is that the ruffians will be so frightened that they'll immediately scatter and run away. And as Brown is trying to spread this plan and convince his fellow anti-slavery men of the merits of it, What's going on is that the free state leaders joined by Governor Shannon are trying to negotiate, desperately trying to negotiate some form of a truce. 
Governor Robinson is joined by James Lane. He's the military leader of the Free State Faction. Lane actually gives Brown his first commission. And they will be working, Lane and Wilson, with the president's emissary and the pro-slavery border ruffians in these sort of around-the-clock negotiations to prevent this, you know, bloody massacre from breaking out. And as the anti-slavery men in this town of Lawrence are fortifying their ramparts, suddenly uh, Shannon, Lane, and Robinson, these three officials, will ride back into the town of Lawrence and announce that the anti-slavery men need to stand down and drop their weapons. Just to give you a sense of the scene here, Shannon, Lane, and Robinson will go outside of the biggest building in Lawrence. This is um, a location known as the Free State Hotel. I think you can kind of imagine like a large wooden structure of the kind you would see in a Western movie. And so these three officials are taking turns in tandem, all agreeing with each other, urging the Free State men to accept the peace treaty that they've struck with the uh, pro-slavery side and, and stand down. And as these officials are trying to dis- defuse this tinderbox they have here, desperately trying to avoid bloodshed, someone is going to suddenly climb atop a platform near the edge of the hotel and getting up high so he can be seen by the whole crew of hundreds of anti-slavery men who have gathered to hear what these leaders have to say. And of course, the, the anti-slavery man who's climbing this platform is in fact John Brown. From this little platform, Brown will berate the governors, uh, Shannon and Robinson, and the military leader, Lane, for cutting this deal with the pro-slavery side. Lane, remember, had just made Brown an officer in his army, and now, literally, you know, less than two days later, Brown is publicly berating his superior officer in front of this huge crowd. Ironically, just a quick digression, Lane is kind of a bit of a moderate, and he wants this peace deal at this moment. He comes to Kansas as a rabid racist, uh, this General Lane, and yet, you know, in 10 years, he will actually be one of the most radical um, anti-slavery figures in Kansas. He will actually call for Black people to ultimately take over the plantations after um, the Civil War, and in the future, he will praise John Brown, but right now, they are on opposite sides, and Brown is also on the opposite side of Governor Robinson, whose uh, widow would write the book that we were talking about in the beginning of this episode that was totally devoted just to tearing Brown down. Brown would later say of Robinson and Lane, quote, They are both men without principle, but when worse comes to worst, Lane will at least fight. There is no fight in Robinson. What a pity it is that men, when they begin life, should not get hold of some fixed principles, end quote. But anyway, back to this moment in front of the Free State Hotel, Brown is going to, as I said, mount this platform and demand that the leaders who are in front of this crowd explain the terms of the deal that they reached with the pro-slavery side. And when Brown demands that the leaders make the terms of the deal public, the leaders refuse to do so. And as the crowd goes restless and appears to be echoing some of Brown's suggestions, Brown will will say, um, you know, essentially that we should go to war right now. One account of John Brown's um, speech here will read, quote, John Brown, boiling over with anger, mounted the shaky platform and addressed the audience when Governor Robinson had finished talking. Brown declared that Lawrence had been betrayed and told his hearers that they should make a night attack upon the pro-slavery forces and drive them from the territory. I am an abolitionist, he said, died in the wool. 
And then Brown offered to be one of 10 men to make a night attack upon the border ruffian camp. Armed and with lanterns, his plan was to string his men along the camp far apart. At the given signal, in the early morning hours, they were to shout and fire on the slumbering enemy, end quote. Brown will also say, quote, What are five to one odds when our men would be fighting for their wives, their children, their homes, and their liberties against a party lured on by whiskey and bacon, end quote. After this little speech, which really begins to grow Brown's uh, reputation, although that will really explode in the next episode, as we'll talk about. After his speech, Brown is cajoled by the free state leaders into submitting, into agreeing not to pursue this, you know, 10-person invasion of a force 100 times bigger than it. But very quickly after the anti-slavery men agree to scatter, the terms of the peace deal that's reached, at least from Brown's perspective, very quickly vindicate his suspicion of cutting a deal with the pro-slavery border ruffians. After this event in the winter of 1856, throughout the spring of 1856, a bloodbath is going to engulf the territory of Kansas, directed and carried out by the Missouri border ruffians. That winter, there's going to be another election, this time for attorney general. A few uh, free state men are going to be brave enough to try to defend the polling station there's a gang of about 50 pro-slavery men that will uh, essentially kidnap a man named Captain Reese Brown. This is, guy has no relation to John Brown, but this guy is um, bashed in the head with a hatchet. His body will be dumped outside the home of his screaming widow. There's another incident where a drunk ruffian makes a bet that he can scalp an abolitionist in two hours. He will shoot the first free stater he sees and scalps him with a bowie knife while he's still breathing. This guy will win $6 for this bet. And then when the anti-slavery leaders cry foul for these and other abuses, Sheriff Jones, the one we've been talking about, of the uh, pro-slavery camp, will go to a border ruffian judge and get him to issue warrants for the arrest of the anti-slavery leaders and Amazingly, you got to think John Brown, at least at some level, loved the delicious irony of this from his perspective. These warrants will include the arrests of Governor Charles Robinson and the General James Lane, the leader of the Free State Militia. And so on May 21st, 1856, close to a thousand border ruffians will again get together and they'll march yet again on the town of Lawrence. They are led again by Sheriff Jones, and they ride under flags of Southern states. They wave banners, some of which will proclaim, quote, the supremacy of the white race. The pro-slavery men seal off the town. They round up citizens and demand that they give up their guns. They then move methodically from house to house, looting and pillaging everything they can get their hands on in this free state town of Lawrence. They will destroy the anti-slavery newspapers, smash the printing presses, and then throw their lead type into the Kansas River. Jones orders the bombardment of the Free State Hotel. Again, this is the main fortification in the town and the makeshift headquarters of the anti-slavery faction. But his uh, men are too drunk to use the cannon effectively, and their shots uh, sail clean over the building. 
Jones will instead order his men to just torch the hotel. The ruffians then ride over to Governor Robinson's house. They burn it to the ground. The free state leaders who had chastised Brown are then themselves rounded up. Governor Robinson is arrested on charges of treason. He will remain in enemy custody for more than a year. General Lane, again, who is one of the main authors of the Topeka Constitution, he will also be arrested and taken into custody. Remember that these are the guys who are just urging John Brown to stand down and trust that it could be possible to reach a deal with the pro-slavery side. This event is going to be known as the Sacking of Lawrence. With the city in flames, Sheriff Jones will tell his militiamen, quote, This is the happiest moment of my life. I determined to make the fanatics bow before me in the dust and kiss the territorial laws. I have done it. I have done it, end quote. When John Brown hears the news of the sacking of Lawrence, he and his men will then race to the town. But by the time they get there, they're, they're far too late. Lawrence has already been destroyed. And again, not a single free state leader has so much as, as fired a single shot in its defense. One of Brown's lieutenants will urge caution, to which Brown will respond, quote, Caution, caution, sir. I am eternally tired of hearing that word. It is nothing but the word of cowardice, end quote. Brown will reason that peaceful resistance has failed. The abolitionists have written letters. They have begged Congress for help. They have promised the ruffians that they'll submit. The territorial government, the U.S. Congress, the President of the United States, all of these entities that have actual power have made it clear that they are uninterested in intervening to ensure democratic action can occur. Remember the stakes here. Kansas is on the march really any day now to join the U.S. as a slave state. And that will mean that slavery will push north And from there, who knows, maybe the extension of the slavery power in Congress will enable it to push south and to Guam and the Philippines and other holdings of the Spanish Empire. Brown has decided that new tactics will be necessary. He will tell his men to sharpen their swords and to be ready to march. Thank you all so, so much for tuning into our five-part series on Captain John Brown. I hope you enjoyed episode two. Thanks so much for staying with us. Um, all five episodes will be released to the public free of charge, so feel free to wait for that. Um, you can also go to our Patreon, throw three bucks our way if you enjoy what we're doing here. Help us continue the show. We would also really appreciate that, but again, no worries if not. Um, thanks again to our audio producer, Sophia Curzius, to Elena Lacey for the artwork, to Ned Porter for the theme music, and to Stephen Griffith for our outro music. Please um, stay tuned and follow us on our Apple Podcast or Spotify or on Patreon um, so you can get episode three when it is released soon. Um, episode three will cover the most controversial single action in John Brown's entire life and uh, one that will change, I think it's fair to say, the course of American history. You're not going to want to miss it. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time. John Brown's body lies a moldering in the grave. John Brown's body lies a moldering in the grave. John Brown's body lies a moldering in the grave. His soul is marching on. The glory, glory, hallelujah. 
hallelujah glory glory hallelujah glory glory hallelujah his soul is marching on he's gone to be a soldier in the army of the lord He's gone to be a soldier in the army of the Lord. He's gone to be a soldier in the army of the Lord. His soul is marching on. Glory, glory, hallelujah. Glory, glory, hallelujah. Glory, glory, hallelujah, his soul is marching on. Hello, this is Matt from the Explorers Podcast. I want to invite you to join me on the voyages and journeys of the most famous explorers in the history of the world. These are the thrilling and captivating stories of Magellan, Shackleton, Lewis, and Clark, and so many other famous and not-so-famous adventures from throughout history. Go to explorerspodcast.com or just look us up on your podcast app. That's the Explorers Podcast. What does Sputnik have to do with student loans? How did a set of trembling hands end the Soviet Union? How did inflation kill moon bases? And how did a former president decide to run for a second non-consecutive term? These are among the topics we deal with on the My History Can Beat Up Your Politics podcast. We tell stories of history that relate to today's news events. Give a listen. My History Can Beat Up Your Politics, wherever you get podcasts.